According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, greenhouse gas emissions from transportation account for about 29% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, making it the largest contributor of such emissions in the United States. Between 1990 and 2021, greenhouse gas emissions in the transportation sector increased more in absolute terms than any other sector. Recognizing the challenge, we are seeing municipalities across the United States taking steps to mitigate the impacts of their transportation programs. It's not something that can be done overnight, as it requires careful planning, innovative thinking, and a collaborative spirit. And they are turning to solutions providers, such as Jacobs, to help them to strategize and deploy environmentally positive programs. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If Win, I was joined by Mark Deschamps, Program Manager and a leader in the transportation decarbonization practice at Jacobs. Mark's particular focus is on delivering fleet electrification solutions. In his 15-year career in the transit industry, Mark has managed transit bus procurements, led strategic planning efforts, and served as Program Manager for transit bus and facility programs. On this episode, he shared his insights on trends we're seeing in green transportation, including some of the challenges that municipalities face when deploying a green transportation program, as well as the opportunities and technologies that are helping to make more sustainable and environmentally friendly public transportation a reality. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. I'm looking forward to talking with you today about the topic of green transportation. You know, everybody's talking about green and sustainability. And of course, it's, you know, with with all the, the cars and, and vehicles on the road, there's obviously a, a connection on like things we can do to be more efficient and, and better stewards of the environment with our transportation methodology. So I'm really looking forward to unpacking this with you. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, happy to be here, Paul. Really looking forward to the conversation. All right, fantastic. Well, let me uh, let me start. We'll just kind of ask kind of a, a broad question to help us kind of get, get into uh, the topic. You know, from where you sit, you know, and you're you're in the uh, the transportation group uh, within Jacobs, uh, based in in Boston. You know, heart of like data science and and a lot of like cutting edge technology and stuff. So it's a great great confluence of subject matter expertise there. So from where you sit, you know, what are some trends that we're seeing in green transportation currently? Yeah, so I think that one of the biggest trends we're seeing right now is simply one of acceleration. Green transportation has been around for a while and it's been around at a very small scale in general. We've had, particularly in the transit space where we've seen heavy duty fleets uh, with mandates to electrify their, you know, their operations or decarbonize their operations by 2040 uh, or 2035, whatever the date might be, uh, those mandates in, in many cases were published five years ago. And agencies and, and other client types have started off with these smaller scale demonstration projects where they've gotten a little bit of familiarity with the technology and what it might mean for their operations. And I think because of the disruptive nature of this transition, we've seen a little bit of hesitancy to, uh, to sort of jump in with both feet. And now that we're not in 2018 anymore, we're in 2023, uh, it, you know, it's starting to get late. Around 
month here. And mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in terms of how these types of projects roll out, as Yogi Berra once said, it sure gets late early around here. Uh, and I think a lot of our clients are starting to see that. So we're seeing the, uh, these projects start to accelerate where instead of having, say, 10 vehicles in service, people are now starting to go to 100 or they're starting to go to look at 500. We've got one client who's looking at having 1,500 vehicles, uh, electric buses on the road. This is the New York MTA, something along the lines of 1,500 electric vehicles on the road by 2029. Mm -hmm. Uh, And right now it's 2023 and in public procurement timeframes uh, that, you know, 2029 is sort of right around the corner, especially when you consider the complexity of of the programs that are involved. So, So I think the biggest trend we see is clients in different sectors, not just in transit, but in other fleets, uh, looking at the calendar and saying, boy, we've really got to, we've really got to start to get moving. And then similarly, our utility clients who are on the, on the supply side are facing the same challenge, but from the other end. So on, on the transportation side of things, we've got clients who are uh, trying to put their, put their fleet electrification plans together and, and start their infrastructure works uh, and then utility providers are trying to respond to those requests for service and figure out how much power they need to supply and where and uh, where they need to bring it from and, and how they balance that in, in, uh, in terms of the grid. So this is, uh, uh, we, we're kind of moving from that demonstration stage to the early implementation at scale stage. And that, that really presents some, uh, some big challenges in terms of capital funding, in terms of organizational uh, thought, and uh, and really in focus. And I'd say none of these agencies or clients were looking for a new day job. You know, mm-hmm. they all had an operation that they were trying to complete uh, every day before they were told that they needed to change it from fossil fuel to zero emissions. So uh, all of this gets added on top and it makes a real, makes for a real, a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, I want to I want to give you some props for having the courage as someone from Boston to quote a New York Yankee. So um, <laughs> I love it. I love you. Um, so, you know, I remember seeing a couple of years ago, you know, this this push for electrification and, you know, the political will is out there. Right. And so a lot of like, you know, city city management mayors and whatnot are going out and they're pushing for the electrification of their 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 public transportation fleets. But then it's like the question of like, okay, you've gone out, you've made some bold projections on like what you're wanting to do, but your electricity grid may not be ready for that, you know, for that draw. Um, I also understand like because the the electric, the, the battery packs on electric vehicles create a heavier vehicle, which then can degrade the concrete on the roadways more rapidly than say like a petroleum-based vehicle and stuff. So then there's infrastructure challenges on top of that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak or whatnot. Right. You know, so it's like yeah. that they want to do it, but they're not sure, you know, there's, there's things that have to be thought through and worked through. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what are some of the barriers, blockers, challenges that, you know, slows <laughs> down the growth of green transportation and, <laughs> How can we overcome those, especially as you have rightly noted, our time frame is starting to truncate? Yeah, absolutely. So we here at Jacobs like to approach our green transportation clients with sort of a roadmap approach, and we break it down into a few uh, key areas. So it all starts with, uh, in our minds, it all starts with the service planning. 
what is the job you are trying to do with these vehicles? What's the job that you do today? Mm-hmm. And how does that job get done with a different vehicle type? Uh, you know, we like to say that that uh, electric vehicles perform differently than diesel vehicles. That's like me saying that I have different abilities of basketball than Jason Tatum. You know, uh, so uh, it, that's that's a true statement, but it sort of glosses over the fact that I'm never going to be Jason Tatum. So uh, in terms of range, uh, battery vehicles don't have the same range as a fossil fuel vehicle. So we have clients right now who have vehicles, they don't have fuel gauges on, on board because the driver doesn't need to know how much fuel is in the vehicle. It's always going to be enough. They fill them up every night, they go out, they do their entire day service and they fill them up at the end of the day again. And the driver never needs to know. Hmm. Bring that to an electric vehicle and you've got an entirely different arrangement that, that needs to be front and center as to how much energy is left on board the vehicle. And what that does from a client standpoint is it, it means that they need to rethink their operation. We want to get the same job done and we've got a vehicle that's got a different capability. Mm-hmm. Now, early on, that led to clients saying, we need two vehicles for every one that we're going to replace because the range is only half of what it would have been. Now, that is a, it's a kind of a, a bar napkin uh, calculation. And what we have found by applying some rigor and some simulation techniques to it is that we can really advance the, the mission with a lot less vehicles than people think, you know, by, by kind of mixing and matching the jobs that the individual vehicles are doing to sort of match up one short route with one long route, rather than having a bunch of short routes tied together and then a couple of long ones and the service sort of breaks. So if you're clever about it uh, and methodical about it, you can make it work a lot better. So, so that's the sort of the foundation. That's the starting point. What that informs is how much power you need and when you need it. You know, if you look at, okay, we've got 100 vehicles in the depot and they're all, they're going to charge at 150 kilowatts. You say, all right, we need 15 megawatts of power. Well, that's, again, that's bar napkin math. And it, it would result in you putting probably twice as much power infrastructure on your site as you need to. So if we map this out, we want to be efficient, you know, conservative because you want to be prepared for a bad day, but conservative, but efficient in terms of how we map out our power needs, which can help inform your operations costs, what's your electric bill going to be every month, and then how much stuff do you need to, to put into your facility. So the next step is the facility. What's the site that you're working with? Uh, how much how much stuff do you need to put into it? How much room do you have? Was the building built for these uh, these types of vehicles? Almost certainly it wasn't, but can it be a comp- can they be accommodated? Uh, we have some clients that have uh, depots with ceilings that are too low. You know, you can't fit an electric vehicle inside the building, uh, which mm-hmm. is a, that's a challenge you kind of can't overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one client here in, in Boston, they have a, a depot. Uh, this is the MBTA. They have a depot that was originally built for horse-drawn carriages. Uh, so it's uh, it's fully depreciated, as we like mm-hmm. to say. So we've taken, uh, uh, we helped them identify a new site for, mm-hmm. for a depot, uh, uh, for a new build. We've uh, done the preliminary design, taken that to 30%. Uh, we're the program manager for that uh, that program for their entire bus facility network, and now that facility, the uh, the bids are opening soon, and uh, they're going to be building their first new depot in 25 years, and it'll be ready for zero emissions vehicles on day one. You know, they're not always going to be new builds. Sometimes we have to retrofit, and we have to decide whether we've got assets worth keeping or whether we need to start fresh. The next thing we do is we look at the vehicles. This is where a lot of people start, and it's 
you know, you, you can run into trouble if you go out and buy a bunch of vehicles and you haven't done all the upfront work because you either don't know how to use them or you don't know how much power you need or you find that you can't get the power in time or that the facility isn't ready. Mm -hmm. uh, so the vehicles come come next. That's when you you start procuring equipment, working the kinks out. A lot of times you'll have a small demonstration fleet first so you can do some of the pre-work. But before you start buying them in mass, you really need to do a lot of upfront effort. The next bucket of, uh, of work is uh, sustainability and equity, mm -hmm. where we want to make sure that clients are meeting their sustainability targets, uh, helping them to comply with any regulations that they may have, whether they're mandates or legislative targets, uh, and then deploying capital and deploying programs and projects in an equitable way that's responsive to the communities. So particularly in the public sector space, although in the private sector as well, a lot of our clients are really prioritizing deploying vehicles, electric vehicles in areas that are impacted by poor air quality, mm -hmm. uh, historically underserved communities, uh, environmental justice communities, and that, that becomes really important to, to our clients. Uh, and then last but not least, once you've sort of figured out what is it we're trying to do, mm -hmm. we look at the funding and the schedule. And, and that really is where it all comes together. We have this objective. We have this aggressive target. How do we do it? What are the projects that need to be uh, executed? Uh, how much are they going to cost? What are the deadlines? When do we really need to start? And I think that's the thing that people a lot of times don't appreciate, particularly when you start talking about all those prior work streams that I just laid out. You've got service planning, you've got vehicles, you've got facilities, you've got power. You've got a lot of different stakeholders that all have their, their hand in this. And these are not folks that necessarily work together on a regular basis. Uh, so when do you need to start your environmental permitting for your new facility? Probably a lot earlier than you might think. When do you need to contact a utility? And how long is it going to take them to bring the power in? You don't want to buy vehicles and find out that you've got nowhere to plug them in for two years. You don't want to deploy infrastructure and find out that you don't have vehicles to, to use them uh, for a couple of years because now you've got capital just sitting around idle. So uh, this all becomes really important, incredibly complex. And, uh, and I think a lot of our clients, like I said before, they all have day jobs and transforming their organization isn't it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, delivering goods or picking up garbage or, you know, transporting passengers. And uh, so this is a, you know, it's that multifaceted programmatic thinking that I think Jacobs really excels at, which is why I think we've got a, a real value proposition to our clients. Yeah. And I can see in like something like this, I mean, it's, it's, it's disruptive, of course, it's change. You know, and then it, you have to justify uh, expenditures and mm -hmm. funding. And like you said, there has to be a proper amount of planning so there's not waste. You don't get ahead of your skis, so to speak, in terms of getting things rolled out that you're not that are not supportable. And then, you know, of course, like dealing with the political landscape and stuff and the competing interests of like there's only so many resources that can be deployed against X, Y and Z, you know, and so making that case. So. I'm assuming not only like planning, but like data science and stuff. I know, I know Jacobs has acquired a company called Streetlight Data that does a lot of data science in the transfer transportation sphere. You know, so I'm I'm assuming that data science plays a role in uh, transportation planning and how something like this can come about. I wouldn't be surprised if there was like digital twinning going on with building out, you know, charging stations. I'm sure, too, in a place like Boston, for instance, with a lot of uh, 
a lot of history. You can't just go in and just tear things down or rip up streets and do things, <laughs> right? There's you've got to you've got to also have respect for the existing environment uh, and and build in a way that is cohesive and not destructive. But that said, I'll get off my soapbox here. Can you share with us, you know, some excite or any exciting advances in green transportation that are being actualized now and like how how you're seeing technology help push green transportation forward? Yeah, absolutely. So and you mentioned digital technology and, and uh, digital twinning as well as streetlight. So we, you know, we are working with uh, streetlight on some of our uh, with some of our clients uh, in close coordination to identify, you know, where is the best place to build the charging infrastructure based on usage patterns. I mean, I think that's a for those who understand what streetlight's capability is. That's a fairly obvious and, and really helpful uh, way to use that capability. Mm-hmm. So if we've got a client who's trying to decide where they buy land or where they uh, want to invest first, the place where the vehicles are most likely to be and most likely to need the need the charge is the, the, the best place to start. With regard to digital twinning, yes, we're actually working on some, we've got some simulations that we've developed for uh, a couple of uh, clients that have constrained sites. You know, you've got a, a, a small well, it's a large site, but it's a, it's a tight envelope uh, when mm-hmm. you start putting all those things inside of it. Uh, you need to figure out not just how does this facility work on paper, but how will it work in real life? If you've mm-hmm. got, you know, 100 or 150 vehicles coming back in uh, at some point during the day or the evening and looking to charge, how do you make sure that vehicles that are fully charged don't get stuck behind vehicles that haven't started charging yet, or that you're not overstraining certain pieces of equipment by trying to charge too many things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's, it's making sure that the facility doesn't work just in theory, but that it works in practice. I mean, it's still a simulation, but it's a much more granular simulation, that digital twin, like you described. And it really has helped us work with clients to explain, you know, some of the limitations that get introduced when you, when you try to put, this theory of operation into a physical space, particularly one that was designed for something else. So that's some of the things that we're doing. I think on the technological side beyond that, I think the market is starting to see more of a move toward, you know, the term charge management has been used uh, a lot where that helps. There's a, there's a software that layers on top of the, the, the vehicle chargers that, interacts with the grid and identifies when the optimal time to charge the vehicles uh, might be to minimize your operating costs. We're seeing that those capabilities are now growing into more of an operations management, which not only looks at the charging and the the cost of power, Mm -hmm. but also what the vehicle is being asked to do. So it'll look at the scheduling system and say, okay, this vehicle needs to go and run this particular route and do this particular thing. It's Mm -hmm. also looking at the vehicle telematics system. So the vehicle will let the system know uh, where it is and whether it's running late or if it's ahead of schedule or if there's traffic. Uh, and then it'll also check the power costs and the, you know, the, the charging schedule. Now, I, I just described a system that sounds really elegant and, and would be great to have. And we've had a lot of vendors describe those systems to us as well, but no one's deployed you know, uh, a great number of these yet. So I think the jury's still out on uh, which individual technology providers will be able to deliver the goods and which ones are going to go by the wayside. And I think a lot of our clients on the transportation side, all of that uncertainty represents significant risk to them. 
you know, it's 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 easy enough for you and I to sit here and sketch out a theory of operations for a brand new uh, system, but actually making it work is a completely different thing. And we've got transportation clients who are in the business of delivering goods or delivering people every day, and it needs to work uh, no matter what. And they can't just take a flyer on some unproven uh, system or technology. No, absolutely. You know, and it's, I mean, it's, with cutting edge technology, I mean, I, I think about like the advent of personal computing and stuff, you know, and just like what we've seen in like the dot com era and startups. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, technologies being rolled out and being tested. All kinds of promises are being made and many of them do fail or they, they don't mm. live up to the promise. But regardless, like you have to start somewhere. You have to like yeah. you have innovation so often is about breaking things and like trying again and stuff. So it's like, you know, there's given where we're at with, you know, the climate and stuff, you know, obviously doing nothing is not an option, but let's, let's talk a little bit. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about one thing. One thing though, Paul, I would say just to, just to elaborate on what you just said, I I think that failing, you know, that the, uh, the Silicon Valley idea of, you know, failing fast is, Mm -hmm. is a great one. And I think that, that works well for a company like Tesla, right? Where where you've got essentially a luxury uh, luxury item, or at least it used to be, you know. But yeah. um, you know, with a lot of our clients, you know, it's, whether it's someone whose job is to pick up garbage or to transport passengers, these are not luxury services. So we mm-hmm. we have incredibly risk averse organizations who are not don't have the luxury of of things not working, right. you know. And people's lives depend on transit you know, service working in, in large metro areas. If the, if the bus doesn't show up, they don't make it to their doctor's appointment. They don't make it to their jobs. Mm. Uh, if, if school buses don't work and, you know, on a mm. cold day, then the kids don't get to school and people's or people's garbage don't get picked up if the garbage truck doesn't work. So there is a, I think that the innovation, it's, it's this interesting kind of mashup between the innovative spirit of new technology mm. versus the, need for core services to be delivered uh it creates a little creates quite a quite a challenge for some of our kind of core infrastructure clients yeah so i no i i fully agree with you i mean it's i think innovation has to be uh balanced right you know so um it has to be balanced appropriately with risk but let me ask you about opportunities because i i think a lot of what we've discussed today has been more about cost reduction efforts, efficiencies, things like that, mitigating risk. But what about like when we flip that over, like where where do you see opportunities within the green transportation sector to help organizations grow profitably? Like what's mm. what are the positives as opposed to just simply avoiding the negatives? Yeah, so a few things. First, I would say that in the energy marketplace, particularly with global volatility and global uncertainty, mm-hmm. uh, the closer you can bring your supply uh, to your home, the more secure and predictable it should be. Mm-hmm. Now, the US you know, electric grid is not, it wasn't, it wasn't pre-designed, you know, it's sort of a reactive, organically growing uh, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're able to work with clients to supplemental infrastructure, whether it be a microgrid or stationary energy storage, basically big batteries on their sites to help manage their electric loads, implementing solar to help bring the costs of overall electric vehicle operations down by sort of taking control of your own destiny. Mm-hmm. I think those present some opportunities. I think electrical, excuse me, electric vehicles 
in theory, I say in theory because the technology is still pretty new, but in theory, they have fewer, they, they have fewer moving parts. They are less complex than fossil fuel vehicles. So the, the maintenance costs and operating costs for those vehicles should be lower. We haven't seen that yet because, again, the technology is still in its early days. But when that technology has more years under its belt, the maintenance costs will will go down uh, for those vehicles. And then I think as well, thing I described earlier about looking, taking a fresh look at their the service that that these various uh, clients are operating, you know that that does to a certain extent present an opportunity for a fresh start. A lot of times these these routes and these services that are being delivered mm-hmm. have it's the way we've always done it. You know, that might be the reason why they're running a particular route or a particular way. Mm-hmm. And if you're taking uh, if you're forced to change to deal with the new technology, take it as an opportunity to step back and say, what's the best way to do it moving forward? Is mm-hmm. there a better way to do it? Then as well, I think we've got opportunities for, you know, in the next five to seven years, I would say, for uh, vehicle automation to take on a more significant role. Now, I'm not advocating for, you know, driverless school buses to go around picking up kids. I certainly wouldn't put my kids on a driverless school bus, you know, but uh, but I think that it's not unreasonable for uh, a few years from now for a, for a, a bus uh, to drive itself into a maintenance bay uh, after the mechanic, you know, pun- you know, punches in the code uh, and, and in a controlled setting, you know, a, a vehicle drives itself into a maintenance bay and then they put it up on the lift and they do their inspection and they do their maintenance action. So, I, you know, that kind of thing, I think, uh, presents some real opportunities to, to improve workforce efficiency and mm-hmm. uh, reduce accidents and injuries and things like that. So I think there are uh, opportunities uh, throughout the sector. Yeah. I, and I know like in the, uh, like on uh piers and and uh ports and stuff they're they're looking now at like autonomous trucking and aut- yes. autonomous vehicles and stuff so um, absolutely it, it seems like it's probably not a far leap to like bring that into the the mm. municipality proper you know mm-hmm. in, in some of these public transportation sectors yeah. so where do you uh, my last question for you you know where do you see things evolving like say in the next five years or so so I would say that the next five years will be both inspirational and uncomfortable at the same time. Hmm. I think we're going to see lots of projects, as I mentioned in the very beginning, start to scale up. Hmm. We're going to see uh, instead of deployments of ones and twos or fives and tens, we're going to see 100 or 200 maybe 500 vehicles, depending on the size and scale of the fleet that we're talking about. Some of those will go well. Some of them will be awkward. There will be missteps because these types of projects are incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are multidisciplinary. They require your entire organization to react uh, in a way that is collaborative and is you know, not that our organization, our client organizations don't collaborate, but to a degree that mm-hmm. they're not used to. It's, as I said, their day job is doing one thing and this is a different thing. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see some projects that go pretty well. We're going to see some projects that are, let's say, learning opportunities, I have to mm-hmm. put it diplomatically. And and I think that the five years after that, hopefully, we're moving forward more effectively. Although I see the five years after that, I would say we'll probably know what needs to be done 
and we won't have maybe as many missteps, but the ability of the industry to keep up with the scale of the change will probably be the next, uh, the next challenge. Honestly, I think that'll be an issue in the next five years as well. I mean, even in the, you know, in the transit bus uh, market space, which is where I, that's where my roots are. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had uh, one major bus manufacturer leave uh, the U.S. market, and another one's currently in bankruptcy filing. So the, the supply chain is shrinking. We're seeing suppliers, uh, system suppliers being acquired by others and some market consolidation. Mm -hmm. So I think those kind of trends, those market uh, disruptions will continue as well. And that that could make things, say, a little bit spicier than we're looking for uh, as we uh, put the we uh, we put this press on. So uh, like I said, it'll be uh, inspiring, but uh, but challenging at the same time. Yeah. And I think that there's going to there's going to be a real push for collaboration and stuff because there's inaction is not really an option. And right. I mean, there's, the political will won't allow for it. And, you know, quite honestly, like the climate conditions won't allow for it either. Yeah. So organizations are going to have to do something. Yeah. And so like in a space like this, where it's new technologies, new ways of doing things, departments mm -hmm. are going to have to start cooperating with each other, maybe yeah. in ways they're not used to, but, uh, and even organizations, they'll have to reach out, I, I suspect. So to help smooth some of those wrinkles, but it will get there. They're just going to have to, they'll have to find ways to work together. And I think, you know, operators like Jacob's, who have that breadth and scope and expertise to be able to uh, demonstrate the art of the possible, the benefits and the how to reduce risk and, and costs. I think, you know, obviously like a company like Jacobs is really well positioned to address those kinds of challenges. Absolutely. So Mark, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today. Really fascinating conversation about green transportation. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what Jacobs is going to be doing next uh, in this uh, sector. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Paul.